0: Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Laurie Forner, a physiotherapist working in pelvic health, as well as a new student researcher on the fun, long road to a PhD where we will be looking at pelvic floor problems and exercise. I'm here to bring you information from leading professionals on all aspects surrounding pelvic health for any gender and any age, from the vast range of pelvic floor problems to exercise and sport, Remember our disclaimer materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Okay, welcome back, everybody, to the Pelvic Health Podcast. This is part two on levator and I avulsion with Professor Peter Dietz. If you didn't listen to part one, you've got to go back and listen to part one because I left people on a cliffhanger and we are taking where well, we are continuing on from there. Also, as a thank you to those who pledge and support the Pelvic Health Podcast through Podbean, um, I will be putting up the patron-only episode that uh, Professor Peter Dietz is discussing where we are with regards to surgical management of levator and eye avulsion. So you can check that out at podbean.com, and you can become a patron, pledge some money to support the podcast, and then you will have access to the patron-only episodes. I thank everybody for listening, please um, subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss any episodes and Lee review and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Is there um, not it, ever an instance where I'm not an obstetrician so I don't know but is there never an instance where um, you know you avoid avoid forceps as much as you can as an obstetrician and then the baby is at risk and it's your only option and you need to get it out quickly?
1: Yeah 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 you see in the past I would have said true i mean you know i've i've been responsible directly or indirectly for a bit over 2000 births so i've stopped doing obstetrics some eight, 8 9 years ago but i still you know i i reckon i'd still be fine okay um, i think i've done enough and um, in three countries and i would have said yes that's probably true there there are times when you really want to use a forceps but that's the past what I would say now is, um, well, if you think like that, why don't you spend a month in Copenhagen? OK, hmm. just go and join your obstetric colleagues in Denmark or Sweden somewhere or in some places in Norway. In Norway, it's very mixed in Bergen. They still do a lot of forceps, but in other places, Trondheim, Oslo, Oslo they don't just just uh, join your colleagues there or in some Italian or Spanish or German hospital where they've uh, put the forceps in the museum and then just see what happens. Um, you see, um, if you know that the only option for a vaginal operative delivery is the vacuum, and if you know that the vacuum may fail, you'll just be a little bit more cautious. You won't let it go on for so long. You won't push it for six hours. You won't end up with, you see something else that's changed over the last 10, 15 years is that we now get those crazy long second stages of six hours plus. And then um, either second, the baby, second second stage, yeah, or worse than that actually, and it's dreadful. This is uh, this is torture. This is um, um, this is a scandal. Uh, but never mind. It's one of many. Anyway, so so there's these endless second stages, which then result in a baby's head that's so badly wedged in the pelvis that you can barely get it out, even with a cesarean. So so in in my entire obstetric career, there was I remember one person where we had to get somebody a midwife to push from below to push the baby's head up so that you can get it out. And now this is a regular occurrence. And there are, in fact, even devices they can use to help with pushing the head up. And we had a skull fracture here recently and we had all kinds of other complications because they've been dragging things on for so long that head was so firmly wedged that they couldn't get it out properly. This is, this is one of the many results of tolerating longer and longer second stages. Another one is that if you, you know, if you, if you let things drag on and drag on and drag on and you flog that uterus with syntocin you know, the oxytocin that we use to make labor stronger, and then you give her another hour and another hour, and then the end result is an atonic uterus that can't contract properly once the baby's out, whichever way. And then you get a postpartum hemorrhage um so, so there's this is internationally mm-hmm. uh, a, a big bone of contention amongst obstetricians uh, whether to tolerate longer second stages, which is of course what you do if you want to avoid cesareans now that's all these discussions w- will not be resolved anytime soon, and they don't have to be because and i i don't i don 't need them to be resolved. I come from a different angle, and we just recently um together with Sasha Callahan, who is a uh, you may, have you seen the piece I did with Sasha Callahan in *Anne's That was she's a, a senior lecturer at the at Sydney Law, which is the the law faculty of the University of Sydney. She's a mother of um, three, I think, and um, and together we wrote a piece that is entitled "We Need to Treat Pregnant Women as Adults." So on on the basis of recent case law and and developments in in medical, legal, in litigation, um, it's clear that we have not sufficiently shared information with patients. So we need to treat them like adults. They have to be involved in obstetric decision making. It's their body. It's their baby. And we need to let them make the crucial decisions. And I cannot see why this should not be possible because we do it every day in our gynecological clinic. And of course we do it in, you know, what do I know, in gastroenterology before a gastroscopy or, or in, in, in plastic surgery before somebody does a flap to, to cover a burn or God knows what, okay? So everywhere in medicine, Since one seminal case in New South Wales in 1993, which was Rogers versus Whitaker, we have been required, we are required by law to share with the patient information on treatment options and the relative risks and benefits of those treatment options. We don't do that in obstetrics. It's as if what happened in 93, 94, it's as if that affected all of the rest of medicine but not obstetrics. So in obstetrics, we're kind of stuck uh, in the 1980s. And, and the, paradoxically, um, the empowerment of women and, and, the, and, and the increasing influence that uh, women's health activists have on medicine has had kind of the opposite effect in obstetrics because all that activism has been telling us to do less cesareans, so what we do now is something that I personally call offensive obstetrics because in the past we did defensive obstetrics. You've heard about defensive medicine. So doctors doing stuff in order to stay out of the <laughs> out of the courts and out of the sight of lawyers. That's defensive medicine. What we do now often enough, I would call offensive medicine because it's offensive in the sense that uh, it's aggressive so we're, we're when somebody does a forceps where previously they would have done an emergency cesarean i consider the forceps an aggressive act and and if 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 the if the pros and cons of that are not shared with the patients i consider it fundamentally illegal and sasha callahan agrees that we are in fact breaking the law breaking the law if we undertake any such drastic intervention that carries significant Material risks mm-hmm. without discussing that with the patient. There are occasional uh, exceptions, uh, say, in a Good Samaritan situation in an absolute emergency. But I can tell you that the absolute emergencies in labor ward are few and far between. Um, and sometimes they only arise because you've basically closed your eyes firmly to the approaching storm. So, so the the there's a really really interesting project we're about to start. Another PhD student to start a project, which is about uh, you know, say so imagine um, a young woman uh, after going through antenatal clinic comes into labour ward. She's what do I know? She's five days overdue. It's her first baby. She's um, healthy and well and no complications. Um, she's 35 years of age and her body mass index is 32 or whatever it is, okay? You pick a number. And that's what I've just told you defines a large part of the risk of a whole number of complications.
0: So the approaching storm.
1: Yes. So what we could do and what we may eventually do, what we, are, what we will do, is to develop um, it's called an artificial neural networks it's a it's basically a sophisticated piece of software that um, is self-learning in the sense that it adjusts the weighing of input variables for the outcome so so the outcome for example would be a normal vaginal delivery yep. a lever de tear an emergency cesarean a postpartum hemorrhage of a liter or more stuff like that and we sh- we can, we are already able to tell that woman on arrival in labor ward what her risks are. And in the person I've just, dis- or I'll describe to you somebody else. Okay, she's 38. She's an IVF patient. She's got a BMI of 35. She's uh, 41 plus six being induced. And then you throw in, she's already had a baby by cesarean the likelihood of her having a normal delivery without doing any major damage to herself is minuscule. The likelihood of her ending up with all kinds of complications is much, much higher than the opposite. And we don't tell them anything. We tell them nothing, which is, uh, it's anachronistic, it's archaic, it's uh, illegal, okay? So if somebody like that comes into labor world in future, what I would want to see is an offer of information i i would want the person to, you know admitting that patient whether it's a midwife or a doctor i would that person to ask listen um you know some people end up with a cesarean and some people end up with a vacuum or forceps or whatever it is do you We we can inform you of the likelihood of that happening and we can keep you up to date so that you can help us decide that you can make that decision so You know, our our decisions are based on the purely medical, but there's a whole lot that you know that we don't. Okay, so there's you know, what's important to you or what's not so important to you, what your priorities are and for you to bring that into the decision making, for you to uh, make an informed choice uh, when there when a choice is available, you need to be informed. And now the question is, do you want to participate like that? Do you want us to fully inform you of what's going on? Do you want us to say if, 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 if if, if, say, if the midwife does an exam in six hours' time and the results mean that the likelihood of an emergency cesarean has just gone up threefold, okay, do you want us to tell you that or not? Do you want to keep, keep informed? Do you want to make such a decision yourself? And some people will say, no, 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 I trust my midwife, I trust my obstetrician, it's all too complicated for me. Yeah. Perfectly fine. But I think it, it, it already is a legal requirement for us to at least allow people that choice. And, and such instruments, such, um, such decision aids, because that's what it boils down to. We would, we would provide a decision aid both for the obstetrician the, in charge of that situation and to the patient in particular.
0: Isn't that um, in part what the your choice is for as well?
1: Your choice is utterly and totally primitive compared to what we are trying to do, actually. Okay. It's interesting, and I know a lot about the history of this because Don Wilson, one of the um, leaders in this, is a former boss of mine and a okay. friend.
0: He was on the podcast discussing it
1: as well. Brilliant, brilliant. Yes. And and I was... Oh, don't die on me. And, and Don and a really interesting debate on this topic it, at an Ayuga meeting in Dublin. I think it was in 13. So that is where it started. Yep. And from the start, I said it's going to be really, really what you're trying to do is great, but it's going to be really hard for people because how is somebody supposed to process that kind of information you know you say okay if i have a cesarean my risk of being uh, incontinent of urine goes down from 23 to 17% in 5 years time it's too complicated okay it's way too complicated and and i don't expect i do not for that reason i do not expect your choice to become um useful in the in the, in a clinical environment okay. because yeah. The information is just too uh, uh, arcane. It's just it's just not direct enough. So so I would and, and from the start I've argued that we should try and predict something that is a lot more yes or no, a lot more clear cut. Okay. So for example, what Jessica called Well Hall, the you know, you met Jessica and, and she may even walk in any minute. Uh, Jessica is, just finished her PhD with me. It's submitted. And um, one of her, the, her last paper, which got published in the American Journal, was uh, the title is How Many Women Get What They Want, A Normal Non-Traumatic Vaginal Birth. Um, so because you see, the it's terribly hard to talk about something that may happen 5, 10, 20, 40 years from now. Yeah. Um, it's so distant. Um, I would far rather, and I want to, and we will predict the immediate, okay? So what people are really interested in because, you know, it'll happen today or tomorrow or maybe in a few weeks' time if you look at it in antenatal clinics. So I want to predict, normal. okay, nobody likes emergency cesareans. Nobody likes vacuum or forceps, and people should hate forceps. And you really don't want a liver or a sphincter tear, so, so what, because that is potentially long-term has potentially long-term negative effects. And, um, I've tried to tell Don and, and, and the, the your choice people that you need to have immediate outcomes. That is at a short timeline In a a yeah. short, short timeline. And you have to have outcomes that they can envisage or visualize. So the emergency cesarean is a, an outcome that everybody can visualize or should be able to visualize. And the same for a vacuum or forceps or the same for a postpartum hemorrhage or the same for a sphincter or a levator tear. And since we know that levator tears are strongly associated with later prolapse and the risk of prol- needing prolapse surgery and the risk of prolapse surgery failing. And we know that anal sphincter tears are associated with anal incontinence, uh, do we need more than that? Um, I don't think so. And it would be no use because to really tell people, you know, if you have a forceps, um, no, um, if you have, yeah, let's put it this way. If you have a forceps, then your lifetime risk of prolapse surgery will uh, quadruple. I mean, even something like that would, or I think it goes up by a factor of five. There is a, there is from from the, 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 uh, the uh, your choice group, one of the people involved ian milsom in fact don too over with with the um, prolonged study which was done in yeah Birmingham, uh, Aberdeen, and in new zealand um, and all that data f- flowed into a review article i did with ian and don about in 16 and um, i use that in medical legal cases so to say the decision to do a forceps here um, increase the lifetime risk of that person for products by a factor of five or ten or whatever it is. So very massively and highly significantly, too. Um, even that is kind of, you know, it's not easy to digest. Um, and people tend to. The other thing is that we are not very well equipped to. Um, to process risk. Uh, there's a book by a guy called Daniel Kahneman, who was a Nobel Prize winner, you know, who uh, has written a whole mass market paperback um you know it's it's like that but it's still it, it was a global bestseller on the way our brains process risk and we're not actually very good at it so so to 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 get to, to expect people to process the kind of data you get out of your choice is asking a bit much yeah but if we say if we tell people just you know imagine uh, the long-term result of what we're doing will be an app. In the end, I mean, of course, this is primarily designed for clinicians, um, and and as a decision aid for patients. But sooner or later, somebody's going to put it in an app, yeah. and then you'll have a patient um, coming into labor ward, um, showing the, the obstetrician the app and saying, "This says that the likelihood of an emergency is there, and for me is 83 percent. I want one now. Thank you very much." Of course, that's uh, that would be dystopian. I mean, I don't think that would be so nice. That would be, um, you know, I think we can do better than that or we will do better than that. But on principle, that's what it boils down to. Okay, so we, we simply want women to understand the risks they run, primarily because we are legally required to do that, to facilitate that. And to say, uh, you know, to say, uh, you know, what it is that women want. Women want a normal vaginal birth that doesn't do any serious damage. To predict that is entirely possible, and we will be able to predict that with a high degree of certainty. Okay. Um, so, so then, so you basically provide the patient with the information. Um, say. In any natal clinic you see somebody who is 22. She has her first baby She's got normal body weight She's fit and healthy and her baby is is, is fit and healthy and you, you tell her the likelihood of you having a normal Non-traumatic vaginal birth is like well over 80 percent. I think you should be in the birth center I think you should not be in a tertiary institution where you're exposed to all kinds of other risks Okay, and then somebody may may even do something stupid that gives you a complication you were not supposed to have okay so maybe you're better off with a midwifery only service with a birth center you may be better off he, not here at Nepean Hospital but rather at the Blue Mountains Hospital where where there's a midwifery service okay so do you see what I'm getting at yeah this should this should help us uh, design better services that should help us apportion or or stream the patient to the service that is most appropriate for her and once she's there, it should help making her a fully informed and competent partner in the decision making, and I absolutely guarantee that that's going to reduce trauma. It's going to reduce wor- your workload and mine in the medium to long term. So by doing the by doing the right thing legally and morally, we are actually going to improve uh, medical outcomes. Um, It'll take a while, but that, that's the plan. That's the next 10 years.
0: <laughs> so before the next 10 years, if um, so, other than maternal age and BMI, any other risk factors that um, obstetricians can take into account at this yeah. point in time that when somebody comes in in order to protect their pelvic floor? Yeah.
1: Of course, really, we want a decision aid. Okay, We want an expert system on a computer that can provide a decision aid. Because, you see, what what we're trying to mimic there is the expert system that is the senior clinician's brain, Mm -hmm. or or the brain of a very experienced midwife, okay? Um, Because what your brain does, it kind of intuitively um, does this kind of risk assessment all the time, okay? And I use... There's a tool that's called decision analysis, which is a, a tool from this is leading too far. It's a tool from Boolean biostatistics, which which allows people to understand uh, how they come to clinical decisions, how what kind of pieces of information are important in a certain clinical deci- uh, decision making process. So so we'd want um, we'd want doctors to understand better what happens in their in their own brains, and even now. Of course, there's lots and lots of brains out there lots of senior obstetricians lots of senior midwives who have that gut feeling Okay, so in a certain patient they look at each other and It's not gonna work out. Okay, so so this is the intuition of What we want to make into a more conscious process and a process that's that is transparent both to the senior and to the junior to the obstetric trainee or to the young midwife and also to the patient, okay so there are other factors. Of course, there are other factors, like um, we've talked about the age at first birth, body mass index. Then another thing that we found in a study we did between 02 and 04 was first the history of first degree relatives. Mm-hmm. So so if your mothers had a really rough time in labor or if your sisters had a bad forceps, then that markedly increases your risk of the same happening. And in Brisbane at the uh, what's now the Berkhofer Institute, where is the largest twin uh, research center in Australia? And we found that the degree of stretchiness of um, then we only looked at bladder neck descent. You know, at at, at um, the stretchiness of the front wall of the vagina and the supports of the bladder and the urethra, and we found that that was about 55% heritable. So that monozygotic um, twins were monochorionic identical. Sorry, I should say identical twins were a lot more similar for that than non-identical twins and there's some fancy formulas that then give you heritability of any kind of phenotypic uh, factor and uh, Manifestation and and we found that there was a lot of heritability in that So so that explains why if your sisters had a bad forceps Then you're more likely to have a rough time in labor So that was actually one of the strongest predictors of trouble and then there is um, and then of course we can we can uh, uh so apart from the family history, we can measure the stretchiness of the pelvic floor and measure the like i just said the you know the downwards movement of the of the bladder neck and the bladder and you can you do that all the time with your machine so so if you if you on the forty ultrasound, if you can see that the pelvic floor muscle stretches like that at thirty eight weeks well that's a really good sign that's,
0: do you have a cutoff that
1: no 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 this is this is not about cutoffs you see yeah. uh, people often yeah, people often try to come up with cutoffs, but that's not how reality works. OK, so, for example, with age at first birth, it's not like 30 is fine and 31 is bad. It's not like that because the increased risk is virtually linear. So 25 is better than 26 is better than 27 is better than 28 is better than 29, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Same with body mass index, same with the stretchiness of the tissues. So. Um, there's other factors as well, like, for example, um, if, if I've already mentioned, if you've had a previous cesarean and that's really that's no good. Or if you need an induction of labor, that's no good. If the baby is really big, it's no good. If the baby is facing the wrong way, it's facing uh, if it's occipital posterior, which means, you know, it's not looking downwards as it should, but upwards. That's bad news too. So there's a whole lot of factors. So if the cervix at term is long and closed, and if you can barely reach it on examination, that's not good. If the head is not well engaged, um, this was an idea of my wife's. My, my Suzanne, have you? Did you meet Suzanne? I
0: did. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. She's lovely. So she's our research midwife, and in I think it was 99 or 2000, she had a real insight. And that was she was just looking at images that of neck descent that I'd produced because that was part of my PhD. And she said, What's that? That's the baby's head, isn't it? On the on the printouts, okay. And I said, Yeah, sure, that's the baby's head. And then she said, Why don't you look how far down it is? You know, how well engaged it is. And and that started we, we had two papers on that in the following five years, but then I gave up on it because there was too much resistance to the this this in our labor ward, basically our midwives did not like the idea of of uh, technology making further inroads into labor ward, and many of your listeners will understand that uh, fundamental kind of um, you know bias, and this is why we we did not we 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 ceased to be world leaders in this, and now there's a large body of research, mostly from um, from the German-speaking countries and from Italy and Israel, where they've done a lot of research on what's called intrapartum ultrasound. So, you know, you just pop a scanner on the bottom and you can see where that baby's head is relative to the pubic bone. And we can, we can see its progress. Um, and, of course, I mean, it's not rocket science, is it? It's kind of banal. Uh, the further down the head is at a given time, the more likely it is to come normally. Um, and, and unfortunately here in Australia, because of the, because of pub, public activism and because of the strength of activist midwifery, we've uh, been completely left behind regarding this. So that's something else that in a rational world you'd, you'd, you'd use, you'd, uh, because this is objective. You know, when we examine, mm-hmm. it's always subjective. Yeah. You know, you, you get three people to examine, you'll get three different results. Yeah um because it's you know dark and deep and you know and god knows what you're feeling with your fingertips it takes um years for people to get really good at that and some actually some never get good at it it's um, like with palpating the pelvic floor okay you've probably noticed are some of your colleagues that are really good at it and some of them never get it it's it's like it's it's um it's a, like some people have a musical ear, and some don't okay some people have really good fingertips, and others don't. It's just normal, some have good eyes some some are good at imaging, and some are not. Some never underst- never manage to kind of you know blot out the the artifact um in an ideal world we would have we would if somebody's in labor with the first baby, we'd keep her absolutely up to date with all the information we obtain and what that information means for her future. For the next 6 12 24 hours of her life which are the most critical hours of her life to date most likely and maybe for all the rest of her life for all the future um and for her baby as well so so i would want to see objective information obtained that's the first thing you gotta obtain it first and then also to provide that to the patient and the implications of it so can you can you see what i'm envisaging yeah uh, this is total empowerment of that mum that is having her first baby. That's putting her in the driver's seat. Um, and that is fiercely resisted by exactly those who should be feminists. I, I don't get it. It's just beyond me. It's just a complete inversion of, of politics. Never mind. So for the moment, as a short-term recipe for your listeners, for those of you who are currently pregnant, make absolutely sure you don't have a forceps. That's um, um, that's no good. Forceps should be banned. It's obsolete, and any obstetrician who tells you otherwise simply hasn't quite caught up with the inconvenient truth. It is like that, unfortunately. And you'll encounter if you if you try to talk to your obstetrician about that, you'll encounter a lot of resistance, um, and they're all going to have their bullshit detectors on uh, high alert and and some of them, of course, do not believe or take seriously what I say, but increasingly there's, increasingly, you will encounter people who uh, understand and who accept the inevitable. The feedback that Sasha Callahan and me have had for that piece in in, in our journal has been exclusively positive. We have had no negative feedback at all. And, and quite a bit from people where you would not expect that from. Like, you know, a 70-year-old, old, white, patriarchal male who who is really from, you know, two generations back in terms of their appreciation of uh, patient autonomy, they get it, it's amazing, uh, everybody gets it. Or so far, those people I've spoken to or those who've emailed me, they get it, They that we have to That's the core thing. We need to treat uh, our patients as adults um, because it's not just an ethical or moral duty. It's actually a legal requirement. So don't have a falseps. So what is the
0: message to the obstetricians who are listening that only ever use it in those circumstances where they feel like, it's a last minute need to yep. save a baby
1: that's right that's right and I I, I I do not want to exclude that such a situation will, will in fact occur it never happened to me but that doesn't mean it doesn't have to it, it won't happen of course it likely will and and another point to make is that that forceps is really now only defensible in two distinct situations the first one is that you can credibly Show that this was an emergency that is a life and death situation that that baby needed to be hauled out within two or three or five minutes Otherwise, it may have uh, suffered brain damage or died. Okay, so it's one situation that is like a good Samaritan act Okay, you just there's the the, the normal rules of consent are waived uh, because uh, um, There's a there's a a life-threatening situation the the other situation is where somebody conscious where the patient has been sufficiently informed of the pros and cons, which includes both levator and sphincter tears and their consequences, and where she still one she where she still prefers a, a vaginal delivery by forceps over a for, up, over a an cesarean. emergency cesarean, that may not be irrational. Okay, in, in the situation that that particular patient's in, it may be from her point of view the right decision. Hmm. It may be from the obstetrician's point of view, the right decision. Um, the crucial issue here is informed consent. Yeah. So, so if you do a forceps in that kind of scenario, you've got to make sure that it is well documented in the notes that you've discussed the pros and cons and what pros and cons there are. And that you and the patient has signed it. That, the patient, that you can be sure that the patient understands as much as it's possible under those circumstances the pros and cons of your decision to, to prefer a forceps over an emergency caesarean. Then it's okay. It's not, I'm not saying forceps should be made illegal. That's, that's not the case. It's birth after caesarean, unless you want five or six or four or five or six babies, the more you have, the more dangerous a repeat caesarean will be. So if an 18-year-old has had a first baby by cesarean because of a breech presentation and then she's 20 and she wants her second and she wants a big family, say, for example, from a migrant background, a Somali, who's likely to have four or five or six children. In that kind of situation, it's absolutely rational to try and have that baby normally because the fourth or fifth cesarean may be a nightmare. Mm-hmm. But if it's a 35-year-old having her second baby after the first one that was a, a like you know a cesarean for failure to progress or a big baby or whatever it is, and Now she wants to try the second and this is likely to be her last Then it's uh, I mean the dinal birth after cesarean is actually irrational and I'm not gonna go into it But I'm happy to do that in great detail in front of an audience of a thousand if necessary because we've got all the data The data is out. So that's that V back. Then the next thing is um, Don't worry about uh, episiotomy episiotomy should be done with you anesthetized or you know, you should of course you should not feel the hurt, but uh, and it needs to be stitched properly afterwards, but it doesn't seem to be associated with anything bad. So don't worry about that That's the wrong focus. It's not the episiotomy that matters. It's the deeper damage hmm. It's the deeper damage that matters and in some instances in, in episiotomy is actually well established as reducing risk like for example if somebody's had a, a third-degree tear with her first baby and now she has her second Um you really want an episiotomy so that it doesn't tear through the original scar Because if that happens you're going to get another third degree or even a fourth degree tear and then things are really bad Because that's basically that we can't fix that properly. Okay, so so in that situation an episiotomy is a good thing It provided it's cut properly and in the past people haven't been doing that very well Unfortunately increasingly obstetricians and midwives are aware that it's got to be done right and there are, there are rules for that that have to be followed. Okay, what else? Um, if, it's, if you're beyond the age of 35 with your first baby, if 35 or over um, with a first baby, it's actually worthwhile thinking about an elective cesarean. Um, because, and, and you know, any kind of um, risk management tool that we will design or that we'll develop or that we are developing is going to help people with that. Because if somebody can work out just from simple data that they themselves possess, if somebody can work out that the risk of an emergency cesarean is 70 or 80 percent, you know, visit at 37 weeks, okay? Any natal clinic, 37 weeks. And then you do this thing and it tells you that the likelihood of an emergency cesarean is 70 percent. It is plainly irrational to persevere. It would be much more rational to arrange for an elective caesarean at 38 weeks. And there's another bone of contention because uh, neonatologists, so the the baby doctors, have forced obstetricians to delay elective caesareans from 38 to 39 weeks over the last 15 years all over the Western world, 20 years. And the main reason for that was that neonatologists hate it when they get a baby after a caesarean, which is flaring a bit. You know what that is? So just working a bit harder when they breathe mm. because the lungs are still, still have got enough, uh, too much amniotic fluid in there because the amniotic fluid hasn't been squeezed out mm. uh, with a normal birth. So, so they, they, they take a little longer to establish normal breathing. And that is why um, the odd baby then goes to the neonatal unit for four hours for observation, which the neonatologists hate because it blocks an incubator. And it's a lot of all the red tape of admitting that baby and then discharging it four hours later. It's a nightmare. And completely useless because they know they just follow they follow protocol and everybody knows that the protocol is really overkill but they do it because it's some bloody policy directive or whatever everywhere in the western world and and so that's why the 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 neonatologists hate those 38 week babies that spend four weeks four hours in the in the neonatal unit but we See things differently because with every day that a baby spends in utero. There's a cumulative risk of stillbirth so Im- Elective cesareans need to be done from 38 plus 0 to 39 plus 0 because every day you wait, wait means a very slight risk of stillbirth and these stillbirths are never seen by the neonatologists. They are seen by midwives and obstetricians and it's the most horrific thing and it happens to every registrar several times during their training that they get called into uh, into a, a room in labor ward. And the midwife says, we've been trying to find the heart and we can't. And she's in early labor or she's just come in because she hasn't felt movement or whatever. And then you put the scanner on and you, you look at the heart and it's not beating. Okay, So that's something that we, we know, we intuitively know that that's a horrific thing to happen to everybody concerned. Uh, of course, most so the mum, and 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 this is what neonatologists simply intuitively don't know They've never experienced that and and so they want those babies born later when we want them born earlier Okay, um, so elective cesarean between 38 plus 0 and 39 plus. Oh, it's uh, for a lot of people It's easily the safest uh, way to have their baby for themselves and for their baby and and the older you are when you have your first baby the more uh, obvious that is um, which kind of means that there won't, of course, there won't be any pelvic floor trauma, which means that um, your or my role is going to be a lot smaller in that particular woman's life, most likely. Um, what else? What else? Afterwards, okay, afterwards, if if there's, okay, you've had your baby, you've had a forceps because you didn't know what, uh, what it meant, um, you need follow-up. Okay, so see your local pelvic floor physio um, with with the Australasian Birth Trauma Association, we are arguing for a Medicare-funded postnatal appointment uh, for physio. so that every woman who's had her first baby normally, vaginally, I should say, uh, is entitled to a postnatal check by a midwife uh, Medicare, um, Medicare, as a Medicare item. That's not going to cost a lot at all. It's peanuts for our health budget. And there's now literally, Laurie, would you agree there's over 100 uh, uh, pelvic floor physios in australia would be competent to do that isn't it yeah
0: probably i'd even say more than that the yeah, grow yeah, is no, growing
1: yeah i'd say between 100 and 300 okay yeah. so it's just, i mean you know in regional cities i mean everywhere yeah. not just in the capital cities so so this is our one five-year goal that we have to to um uh, to um you know be activist in uh, trying to get government to provide for that so because because really, all that's needed is uh, is um, you know a basic pelvic floor assessment, which does not need imaging, It just needs an examination with one finger. and then to train people to make sure that they know how to do a pelvic floor muscle contraction, do it properly, and encourage them to continue basically forever. And in some instances, it'll just be uh, you know you'll you'll just tell them everything's wonderful you'll never have a prolapse this is just you've had a 4.5 kilo baby and everything looks perfect you're just so lucky <laughs> and uh, and in, in others you'd say well you've actually done some damage there and in order to avoid that from causing you problems later i think you should actually strengthen that muscle like any like after any sports injury you know a, 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 an athlete that's uh, got a, that suffered a quadriceps tear on the rugby field well they need to work on it okay so you need to work on it because it's never a total loss there's always um,
0: there's, there's other al- muscles around
1: yeah there's always stuff that's left to do the job if you only uh, treat it uh, if you only treat it right so so that's I think that's important and if you if you've if you've had a forceps or if you suffered a sphincter tear or 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 if it was a really long drawn-out labor or if you feel things are really different afterwards then see a pelvic floor physio and and if appropriate, see a, a, a gynecologist or a urogynecologist. Um, I think that li- right at this point in time, the likelihood of a pelvic floor physio understanding you is probably slightly higher than the likelihood of the average gynecologist understanding you. But that's changing. I mean, it's changing every month, every day it's changing and a lot of our juniors um they kind of to them, at least here at Nepean, certain things are self evident. So they you know, they they learn all this stuff by osmosis. They just uh, <laughs> they're just in the environment and they take it up. So this is why we have the lowest forceps rate in, in uh of all tertiary units in New South Wales, because I don't do obstetrics, I don't tell them what to do. But um you know, it's just um knowledge slowly percolating through. So it'll get become ever easier. And in future, for example, through the Australasian Birth Trauma Association, we will hopefully provide, be able to provide links to networks of providers, both physiotherapists and gynecologists and urogynecologists, and maybe even colorectal surgeons in future, you know, of people who we know um, and trust. Um, and the last thing, the last um, plug, I guess, is that if you think that you're in trouble, um, well, maybe I should pre- preface that by saying that um, it's not just damage to the body that can be done in labor ward. Uh, the, the mind can be affected as well. In that there are some people, and one of my PhD students done her PhD on exactly that, um, on women who were um, who suffered, Somatic, that is bodily trauma, and she interviewed forty of them, um, basically exploring their experience and how they've reacted to it, and how they live now. And she found that um, twenty-six of those forty had symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. That's like somebody coming back from Afghanistan or from Iraq. Um, so that's um, that's important and that's something that nobody's focused on until now so and um, so yeah so 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 there is the australian birth trauma association which um i think maybe Laurie, you can provide a link or something or maybe you already have um which is a charity that was started up by a um, by a um uh, by Amy Dawes in Brisbane, and you probably, you, of course, you know Amy. Yep, and um, she's
0: she's done an episode for the podcast already as perfect, well. Perfect, perfect. Yeah. yeah.
1: So I don't really need to say much, except that it's a wonderful thing, yep. and that hopefully, uh, that's something that I'm very proud of. You know, uh, to be a part of, uh, very proud to be a part of that, and hopefully, APTA will help us raise awareness, support those who need the support, and lobby. Government to make it easier for people to access um, the services that they need to access, and of course, in the in the medium to long run, we want to you know get obstetricians to stop doing forceps and to treat their pregnant patients like adults. So, how
0: do you increase that information to obstetricians other than this avenue oh, and oh, in oh. the literature?
1: All right. Okay. Now, do you see the board there? There's a board, okay. A white
0: board with lots of writing.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the meetings that I'm supposed to attend this year. I think it was, at last count, it was 16. And two or three I can't, so somebody else is going to do it. But these are every single one of those. Well, there's the odd one that's actually physios. But uh, over 90% are doctors, and most of them are obstetricians, gynecologists. So, you know, I work hard. But you can't (laughs) do it all? Of course not, but but that is like there's for example we had a a fellow from I had for three two and a half years I had a fellow from Santiago de Chile Rodrigo Guzman Rojas with us a really bright guy who's uh, gone back and now he does what I just showed you on the whiteboard he does in South America in the Spanish speaking world okay it's wonderful there is not a single South American gig on that whiteboard this year. In all the previous years, there was at least one or two and now there isn't any more because Rodrigo is so good at it And you know his Spanish is a lot better than mine. So he's um, he's a multiplier And and there's there are multipliers like that everywhere like for I've just heard that York, the International Society of ultrasound and ONG, is holding a course in London, which is run by um, Three people two of whom have spent time here Um that that i've trained so so it's getting easier and easier it's like you know it's like strawberry plants that put out runners and then there's another strawberry plant there, 30 centimeters away another one half a meter away this is how things spread this is the uh, the way that human knowledge is disseminated and it's working fine of course you could always say it's never fast enough
0: that's gonna say it takes uh, time
1: yeah sure but in australia we're a hit. We're ahead of any other place on earth and uh, that's partly due to the fact that Australian physios from the very start were very interested in this and, and they didn't have the problem of uh, somebody very senior holding things up. So, so we've been lucky in that I think the, I think practitioners both ONG and, and physios in Australia are on average better informed than anywhere else in the world.
0: Yeah, well, thank you for your time and your work. I know you have to run, so I will let you go. But I really appreciate um, how much, um, how open you are to talking about this um, in every avenue possible in order to inform everybody.
1: It was a pleasure, Laurie.